critiques can get really subtle. And that's actually what started to occur to me with the IDW and dealing with the right, because these guys were exploiting a lot of weaknesses. They were coming in and they were seeing people, you know, look, if, if your pop culture diet, and, you're, and, and let's say you're an alienated young man, which is the primary audience for these guys, that's just market demographics. That's, not a moral statement. I did some brand work. This is just like you're looking at your you're looking at your demos. You're alienated. You don't feel powerful. You probably have a lot of actually very valid complaints in your life. You flip open say some, you know, mediocre bougie website that you think is the left and what do you have? Seinfeld's actually problematic, and you suck, and shut the fuck up, and this is a problem, and that's a problem, and this is this, and da 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 And then Jordan Peterson comes along and goes, no, actually, you're great, and you should have a government-provided wife to massage you. This is the very first episode of the Give Them an Argument podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Burgess. The voice that you just heard, of course, uh, was our departed brother, Michael Brooks, uh, from his Mill Series lecture uh, at uh, Lafayette College. Uh, and I wanted to start out with that for a couple reasons. Um, so one of them is just that it seemed right to me that that be the first voice that you ever heard on this podcast. Uh, since it certainly wouldn't be happening if, uh, if not for him, um, both because months ago uh, he told me that, that I should think about doing something like this, uh, which, which says a lot about the man, that, you know, that he, he was a very ambitious person, but he was, he was competing against past versions of himself. Uh, he was equally ambitious on behalf of his friends and comrades and striving to... Um, enact the political project that he cared about so deeply. Um, and also uh, because I think that the way he sets things up uh, in that clip uh, is, is really good. I mean, the whole thing is great. Uh, counting all the Q&A, it's like two and a half hours. So I'm obviously not going to play that here. Uh, but everybody should look that up, uh, the, uh, the Mill Series lecture, and, and watch it uh, the way that he handles questions from people who are like, you know, college Democrat kind of people who are asking kind of annoying questions. Um, but he could dismiss, he could grandstand, he could use his considerable rhetorical ability to just make them feel silly. Uh, but he doesn't do that. Right? There's, there's a, maybe a little moment of it when somebody asks him a ridiculous question uh, about, you know, whether he was like a self-hating Jew for criticizing Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. And there's a little bit of snark at the beginning, um, justifiably, I thought, uh, before, uh, before he, goes, um, he goes into his real answer. But even in that real answer, uh, you can tell that he's always trying to think about what framing is going to make sense to the students, how he can not just score points with people who already like him, but he can intersect with their worldview. He can give them an argument uh, that would actually mean something to them. And obviously he's one of the most uh, gifted, you know, uh, political communicators that we've had on the left in a very long time, which is one of many reasons the loss is irreplaceable. Uh, but another reason that I wanted to, to start out with um, 
with that clip uh, was because the analysis itself is really sharp and it's going to directly tie into the first thing that I'm going to talk about today. Um, so the first guest uh, in just a couple of minutes uh, is going to be Matt Leck, uh, who, you know, that should be a name that if you watched uh, the um, Michael Brooks show and what's wrong with you, you know, if you never have, um, sorry, it'll be a wonderful new discovery if you never have. Um, and when you do, uh, you'll hear Michael say super producer Matt Leck about 10,000 times. Um, see, James in the chat says he never has, he should. It's great. Uh, like so much gold in there. Um, but what I want to talk about with Matt has to do uh, with uh, some of the issues going around right now about um, you know, free speech and what's sometimes called cancel culture as it impacts the very group of people uh, that Michael is talking about in that clip, uh, the so-called intellectual dark web. Uh, so this is a group of people that includes uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, the, who... Michael was doing this kind of Kermit the Frog <laughs> impression of earlier, uh, which is always fantastic. Uh, and Ben Shapiro, um, who's much more of a conventional conservative. Um, you know, he's also like four feet tall and has a really distinctive speaking pattern. Uh, and uh, Dave Rubin, um, who is just kind of adult, you know, no reason to be dishonest about that. Uh, Sam Harris, uh, who's less doltish than Ruben, uh, is a neuroscientist, uh, but uh, falls into the same lazy habits of thought, uh, the, the same absurd arguments as the rest of these guys do. And finally, last but not least, uh, the Weinstein brothers, uh, Brett and Eric. Uh, and I just want to stay on Michael for a minute uh, because there's a, there's a passage uh, from his book, Against the Web, which, uh, again, I really strongly recommend that everybody read. Uh, it'll take you an afternoon. It's, it's, a, it's a short book. It's a fast read. Uh, but it's packed with, like, really interesting insight and analysis. Uh, no, uh, not to be confused with Harvey and Bob Weinstein. Uh, these, are, uh, these are different Weinstein brothers. Um, and in that book, you know, there's a section where he starts um, talking about uh, Quillette, uh, and in general, that side of the culture war. So here's what he says. Above and beyond everything else that's wrong with this kind of behavior, uh, and what he's talking about is, you know, what's sometimes called cancel culture, some of the more excessive antics of certain kinds of student activists who don't have a good political strategy. He says it's an ongoing gift to our political enemies. Claire Lehman's uh, magazine, Quillette, has printed nonsense about IQ that borders on a contemporary version of phrenology, the art and science of using skull measurement to determine personality traits and intelligence. It's published ridiculous capitalist apologetics, including a crude article by an Amazon warehouse worker defending the company's disgusting labor practices. Uh, it's also published a few good articles by leftists, like he mentions a couple, um, including me and um, our friend and comrade Mac McManus, uh, who actually did a really interesting interview uh, with Michael about his book for the Zero Books channel, you should also check that out, who make a practice of going into enemy territory to argue for leftist ideas. Though I back them in their, their incursions, we should be crystal clear about Quillette's reactionary editorial line. But here is the key passage. 
Here's the thing, he says. Quillette and similar magazines don't attract attention to their toxic material because there's a massive pre-existing audience for their worst takes. Rather, they generate their readership by publishing a never-ending stream of, oh my God, look at these leftists being crazy articles. Does the right exaggerate and lie about these things? Sometimes. But these things really do happen from time to time as well, and when they do, they cause real problems. Entire careers are built on this nonsense. Uh, we wouldn't have ever heard of Brett Weinstein if not for what happened at Evergreen College. Far too much ink and podcast hours have been spent laboriously re-reviewing his version of the Evergreen drama without attempting to relitigate the he said, she said of that situation this far out. I will say that I suspect my friend and uh, editor, Doug Lane, was correct to ask um, whether an increasingly corporatized administration was playing divide and conquer by deflecting student anger away from real decision makers and onto a professor who was arrogant and tone deaf enough about the student's legitimate anger and activism to make for an easy target. Um, the way that activists turn their attention to this ridiculous and thoroughly unimpressive person who nonetheless has connections turned him into a cause celeb for the right. Whatever else is true about all this, what matters most is that Brett and his brother Eric Weinstein are here with us now pushing the right-wing classical liberal problem of the IDW. In a world where the left was just a little better at acting strategically, Brett might will, may well still be teaching biology at a nice hippie liberal arts college, while Eric quietly did whatever it was he did for billionaire ghoul Peter Thiel. Um, Doug Lane, who he mentioned in there, by the way, um, very thoughtfully after, after Michael passed, um, sent me this a bottle of very nice, very smooth bourbon. Uh, enjoying that, some of that right now while I record the episode. Um, but, oh, uh, the Glenn Beck book, <laughs> I, will, I will tell you about later in the episode. So I really like the way that Michael sets it up in this passage, uh, because what I want to get into in my conversation with Matt uh, is the way that there are like a few different levels going on with this stuff. So uh, when people uh, in the IDW, this group that, um, that Michael was criticizing in the passage of the book and in the talk uh, at Lafayette College, as well as criticizing the way the left plays into their hands uh, by not being more strategic, when these guys talk about, you know, free speech and, uh, and various things that, uh, that might be uh, threats to free speech, not everything they say is wrong, but it's also true that some of them are just hilariously amazing hypocrites about it. And it's also true that they don't really have any good solutions. And I want to get into both of those things. But first, Matt, how are you doing? Hey, Ben, I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Uh, I like that you're doing the show. Congratulations on the first episode. I'm honored to be the first guest, actually. Very honored yeah. by that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited. And, that it, you know, it, uh, you know, makes sense to me since, um, you know, so we've interacted so much, you know, since uh, from my debunk segment on TMBS. Before we get into anything else, by the way, uh, since some people might not be be clear about, you know, the TMBS's future. Uh, do you want to speak to that a minute for a minute? Yeah. So David Griscom and uh, Michael's sister, Leisha Brooks, and I will be sort of carrying on the mantle. Uh, we're going to basically continue the show. It, we, we're working it out now, how exactly we're going to do it. It's going to take a lot more responsibility from um, David and I, and uh, it'd be helpful to have Leisha there. 
um, kind of giving us the idea of what the family uh, kind of wants. Um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting. I've been you know, doing a lot more uh, different kinds of reading than I was before mm-hmm. trying to, cause there's like, I need to read the, like the book on Tabo and Becky, Michael always wanted me to read. Um, you know, like it's a, it's a, big task but we want to keep these conversations going so uh, and i'm sure uh, i can speak for david and saying that uh, ben you have an open door to uh wherever we go with it so uh yeah thanks for asking yeah much appreciated yeah i just want people to know because i think not everybody might be clear that that's still gonna be continuing to to exist and go on uh which i'm really you know really glad that it is uh but um Speaking of which, uh, so uh, since as well as, uh, as TMBS, uh, you have a, a role at the uh, Majority Report, and uh, related to that, uh, one of these guys, in fact, the guy who was the subject of that passage that we just read, Brett Weinstein, um, recently, I think, uh, revealed something interesting about the depths of his commitment to, uh, to free speech and, the, uh, and mm. the free exchange of ideas. There's this clip of Brett Weinstein talking about the situation in Portland. And as people might know, um, the protests, you know, in Portland as some of the kind of longest running uh, instances of the continuing embers of the, uh, the national uprising of protests and riots since the murder of George Floyd uh, uh, has been met with a pretty severe government response, not just what we've seen around the country, which has been, local cops, uh, you know, beating people up, beating journalists up, firing rubber bullets, you know, at, uh, at, at people, you know, who are peacefully protesting. Uh, you've seen that all over the place, but in Portland, you know, seen some more disturbing stuff too. There were, you know, there were literally instances uh, of the Department of Homeland Security usurping local law enforcement functions, uh, as well as severely violating people's free speech rights, if that's something we cared about. Um, by using these really like banana republic kind of intimidation tactics where they would uh, uh, grab uh, protesters off the street uh, and shove them into unmarked vans that are obviously designed to make people feel very afraid about going to protests. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you would think that as somebody whose whole brand is built around his dedication to free speech, um, Brett would be outraged about this and you'd think that his commentary on this uh would be uh would be devoted uh to um to denouncing this and 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 explaining why those of us who uh who care about free speech you know you'd think that would be his big concern here right if there's anything like whatever we think about threats to free speech uh from from employers, from, um, from certain kinds of social ostracism, from things that might cause self-censorship. Like the core of free speech is exactly about this, right? Like, you know, exactly about this issue. So you'd think that this would be his big concern here. So what was it? Uh, well, I mean, his concern throughout this has really been um, in the rioting sort of thing. And he's, he's sort of, um, I always talk about it as the sort of look what you made me do Taylor Swift song uh, (laughs) gambit of reactionaries, which is that Brett, you know, he has this, I call it a pose. I don't consider him. I I think it's a Dave Rubin. I'm a man who left the left type of thing. I don't want this to be happening, but nonetheless, the weak executive not allowing tear gas is going to facilitate the need for something uh, 
uh, fatal. And actually, like on, so I posted this clip of uh, the episode 21, the June 6th episode of the Dark Horse podcast uh, of him saying this DHS guy who has, he said, followed him for a while, came up and said, you know, I'm really panicked. And this is just loose quotation here, but I'm panicked about potential race war. And later on in the episode, Brett says, like, you know, what uh, my opinion is that the anarchists who have taken over the Black Lives Matter movement are trying to are game theory incentivized to use this moment of weak executive to try to facilitate a race or a, a massacre somewhere. Maybe not where they are, but they just want one somewhere so that we can really have the revolution. And I thought this was an alarming thing to a conversation to have with a DHS agent on June 6th. This was yeah. Foot, um, footnote, footnote. It's hilarious that he, he, that like there was the thing about game theory in there, like just to kind of give it this, like this, like paranoid right wing lunacy about race war, this like sheen of like intellectualism, you know, that's like, Oh no, but like, you know, I'm a math nerd, you know, I'm not, I'm just thinking about game theory. Yeah. So I, I quote, I took part of this clip um, and it's all like, it starts about 12 minutes in on the June 6th episode. People want to check it out, but I, I quoted that. And I admittedly, um, you know, a bit facetiously called that his consulting work with DHS. Now he took that as I guess borderline slanderous or liable because he said, I, he tweeted out Matt Leck is spreading knowing falsehoods. He said falsehoods. Yeah, the, the, the falsehood to be clear is that uh, is that he was getting paid for this rather than doing this as a freelance volunteer? Yeah, that, I mean it was a it was a, I mean I would say it was unpaid consultation and not <laughs> consulting work. I should have said that. I that as a journalist I should have said that. I and I agree because it gave him uh, a little pedantic point to complain about, which is I think the pattern of these guys. If I could just go through this, so. Dave Rubin complained that uh, a video that I actually titled, um, but we call him stupid in video too. Like we, mm-hmm. we call Dave Rubin stupid. So he couldn't engage with us in ideas. Fair enough. But we got painted as bad for that. Meanwhile, years later, it looks like Joe Rogan and half the IDW agree with that. Um, <laughs> and then we, um, so we got it. That was the first member of the IDW that demanded an apology of Sam Cedar for, as a precondition for a conversation. The second was Sam Harris. Uh, and, uh, because he he went on uh, Weinstein's Portal podcast and called Sam a psychopathic troll. This is during, basically, this is during us criticizing his bell curve stuff, rehabilitating yeah. Charles Murray. And I will just say, uh, the Weinstein brothers are better on the bell curve stuff. They put they go uh, they point out why, but they're not explicit in their criticism of who they're criticizing. But I'm just saying, if you would have came to us more directly, we could have had this conversation. You wouldn't have to d- be distancing yourself from bell curve stuff all these years later. Um, yeah, just, just, just to make sure everybody's listening, uh, really knows what you're talking about here, right? Like that's, uh, so, you know, so Charles Murray famously wrote this book back in the nineties, uh, with, uh, Edward Hernstein, uh, called, um, um, the, uh, called the bell curve where the overall thesis of the book, uh, is that, um, the main cause for pay for like economic inequality uh, was that um, I'm simplifying a little bit, but I think if you slog through the book, uh, you'll find that this is not a, uh, this is not inaccurate. It's a simplification, but that's all it is, uh, is that poor people are stupid. And in particular, there's a famous chapter in there where he uh, applies, he looks directly at the most obvious counterexample, which is, Hey, 
black people have been doing economically worse than, than white people since emancipation. And, you know, you might think that has something to do with slavery and Jim Crow and FHA redlining, uh, but nope. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's because of the, of difference in IQ. Um, and Sam Harris like really, uh, really ran with this. Like after they, you know, there was some incident uh, where there was a college that Murray was supposed to speak mm-hmm. at and, and it was disrupted. And, you know, there was, there's a whole thing there, but instead of just saying, Hey, you shouldn't disrupt speakers, but like also um, Charles Murray is a crazy and terrible person, uh, you know, who's, who's, who's peddling. Who's not a scientist, right? He's a who's, who's political, not a scientist in any way. He's a right? political he's like agent. A, Basically. Yeah, he's a right-wing think tank guy, right? Like, yeah. he's, he's not, like, he spent his entire life in these kinds of institutions putting out, like, right-wing policy books. He's not a scientist. He's just looking for scientific rationalization for, um, you know, the kind of Dickensian economic preferences that he yeah. has. Uh, and so instead of saying all that, right, uh, Harris really embraced him, said, kind oh, uh, Ezra Klein on it, which was everyone should check that out. A pretty amazing uh, debate it, where it, he says, it was. Yeah, "Yeah, like he he say he Ezra." I can't remember the IQ uh, guy <laughs> who they both cite, but uh, Ezra at one point said him saying, "Like it could be that you know, like there's so much." Um, environmental stuff that we just don't know the genetic component and Sam Harris is like yeah but we're talking about what's plausible here and I mean it's a it's a very interesting debate people should go back and watch it is and actually it's even better than that because in that moment uh, it's like the Marshall McLuhan scene in Annie Hall uh, that Ezra Klein actually says actually this guy you're talking about with this effect uh, the Flint effect that's right yeah yeah. Michael Flynn not Michael Flynn geez (laughs) not Michael Flynn Flynn, but a different Flynn yeah (laughs) a scientist Flynn and this 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 Flynn uh, Ezra Klein actually says I just talked to him last night to see what he thinks about this and this is what he says and Harris just treats that like it has no bearing and he's he's still reading Flynn right Uh, and most of the debate is spent uh, with um, Klein trying to challenge him on the merits and explain why he's wrong and Harris whining about how we can't have the conversation, which, you know, kind of sets the, the tone, right? So, yeah. so after you tweeted this thing about, um, about Brett Weinstein's unpaid, unofficial, uh, <laughs> but friendly conversations with uh, DHS agents worried about race war as the DHS is nabbing protesters off the street and sticking them in unmarked vans. Or even like right before that happened, actually. That's what made that a bit weird to see um, because the nabbings happened a few weeks after. But um, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. So so you tweeted this. And of course, um, like an adult, he just tweeted, Hey Matt, I think the way you put that was slightly inaccurate. Uh, you know, would, would you know? Would, would you I'd love to come onto the majority report and correct the record. <laughs> that, that didn't yeah. happen. No, that did not. What happened instead? Uh, he called for me to be fired. Uh, well, he called for me to um, apologize, retract, and then be fired. Um, which is like, <laughs> if I'm going to be fired, like I'm not yeah, going to do any of that. Why did you do all that? that you know, first, right? <laughs> Um, but uh, I did, I immediately deleted it because like I said earlier, I wish yeah. I hadn't done that because, and I just want to get back to this pattern that was, I uh, got yeah. sidetracked with the Sam Harris thing. So Sam Harris, uh, you know, said we won't engage with us because we're psychopathic. He said that our behavior was psychopathic on Eric Weinstein's portal. Anyway, flashback to about a week before this happens with uh, Brett Weinstein. 
Uh, Sam Cedar is dunking on Eric Weinstein for saying that he understands what it's like to be black because he's neurodivergent and people tell him he's wrong about things a lot. And Sam says that, um, hey, Eric, awesome. I know I'm a psychopathic troll in quotes. I know you think <laughs> I'm a psychopathic troll in quotes, um, blah, 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 blah. And Eric seizes on saying, I have never said uh, you are a psychopathic troll. Um, but I'd be happy to say I'm wrong if you can provide evidence. And he has like the, the screenshots of like the Boolean operator search terms. It's like, oh, clearly never said it. But again, Sam Harris went onto his show and called the psychopathic. And Eric said, oh, that's what the whole left is doing these days. That was, what his, that was his pushback to that. And then Eric did call us, says our, our troll game is too strong for him to engage. So that's the third IDW member of the, of the ones profiled by Barry Weiss that demanded an apology of a precondition as a precondition for discussion. And then a week later, Brett uh, asked for me to admittedly, I was provoking him because I think it, I think his behavior, it's, he's, yeah, but, 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 but come on. I mean, like the idea that, uh, that it's okay to try to get people fired to silence them. If the speech is provocative enough, right. Once you said that it's kind of game over as far as everything these guys are in some cases, legitimately right. Complaining about, um, and also, by the way, I just love the idea of the person being called psychopathic in this context, uh, is 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 that monster Sam Cedar, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that, like. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, really, it's so weird. This this you whole know, time one period of the is crazy. Human beings. Well, met. to be fair, he does like to fight with these guys, so I understand from their perspective why he uh, presents or appears that way. Because um, he has a greater appetite than either Michael or I do for this stuff, um, which is why I'm, I'm grateful to work for him. Because Sam, I, when I, I tweeted my response uh, to Brett, um, I tweeted out and I, I put the video back up, but tweeted out some apologies and some other context. Um, and through all that entire thing, Sam, I wasn't like talking to Sam. I wasn't coordinating what I can say. I'm confident in my job at the Majority Report and my place there that Sam's going to have my back and I appreciate that. Well, so. Yeah, and of course, the idea that you would be coordinated it does get right to the heart of the issue because uh, a lot of times, you know, again, these guys are clearly not taking the, it's only censorship if the state doesn't line, right? If they were, there'd be nothing inconsistent about trying to get you fired for a tweet they didn't like. Mm. But they're not, right? Because if they were, then like three quarters of what they object to would be unobjectionable. You know, you, you can no longer say that you didn't like it, that this editor had to step down or this professor was investigating. None of that stuff, right? Because none of that is the state. Mm. So they are obviously concerned about tactics like trying to get people fired to punish them for their speech. Um, and the fact that they're willing to engage in that themselves like this uh, tells you everything about um, how serious they are about it, right? You know, that they'll, they'll resort to that that easily. Well, he, he recently said on a more recent episode that this is different because I'm like a drunk pilot and you can't really have, <laughs> can't have mistakes of this significance. So I guess, I guess mischaracterizing and I guess suggesting a more formal relationship between him and the race war panicked Department of Homeland Security officer in Portland, <laughs> like driving a plane into the Andes Mountains. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, um, also the suggestion, you know, you're like a drunk pilot, like I love you. And like, I think you do great work, but I also think that flying an airplane 
and being a producer for some talk shows maybe aren't really analogous activities? I, I don't know. I'll have to think about that one. Okay, um, fair but, enough. Yeah. But, but yeah, I also think uh, just as, you know, certainly I think you're less likely to kill people in your line of work. I'll, I'll say that much. I mean, I think so. I mean, to, to address that point seriously, he says like in this environment, you don't want to be spreading misinformation like that, which I mean, I have some agreement with that sort of thing, um, yeah. um, which is why I, I, I changed my tweet. Now I feel, I find it a bit rich that the main journalist he always cites and immediately after talking about this DHS uh, conversation is Andy No. That's like his only, <laughs> his only source on the ground. And I mean, Andy No has been criticized for things he's published about uh, hospitalized protesters and journalists. So, I mean, I think these conversations are valid, but I, um, I kind of don't buy it so much from Brett Weinstein in that case. I don't yeah, think I really well, endangered well, him. I think talking yeah. to, I think telling the DHS about anarchists that want to start a race war is, is also <laughs> ir- a bit irresponsible in these times. Yeah, so. possibly even more irresponsible than not making it clear uh, that, uh, that, that he, he didn't have a title and wasn't being paid for the conversation. Um, but it's also important. And I guess maybe this is like the last point I want to, I want to end this on, uh, because above and beyond the fact that they're like weird hypocritical clowns, uh, it's, there's also a more serious thing here, which is that if you are concerned about people using these tactics, like you know, trying to get people fired, you know, for, for tweeting things you don't like, um, then, you know, if you're not just going to be complaining pointlessly forever, right. You know, you, you should have some kind of solutions, uh, and I'll also even say some people on the left like err in the direction of not taking those concerns seriously enough. But I also think the left is in a position to have solutions that none of the rest of these, you know, none of these like IDW so-called classical liberal people actually have, because if you really cared about this problem, which I think you should, um, then gosh, I don't know, maybe you'd like, want to reform labor law so we don't have at-will employment and you have to have a cause for being fired um, or make it easier to organize labor unions so you'll have like, you know, somebody to defend you, you know, if you're about to be unjustly fired and, you know, not to like beat this particular dead horse too much none of those guys ever talk about any of that stuff, at least. Right. Yeah. One thing I keep thinking about is in all the conservative freak out about the 1619 project, conservatives aren't freaked out enough to air the Adolf Reed critique of it, which is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like you have, um, um, yeah, Sam Harris brings Adolf Reed and, uh, on Waking Up, you know, then, then I'll believe that he's actually interested. <laughs> right, exactly. In Any one of these guys, let's see it happen. I mean, be, I don't think, I don't, I, first of all, I think Adolf might be a bit uh, suspect of going on with those guys himself. I don't know. I don't want to speak for him, but um, yeah, yeah, I would I, love I, to see it happen. I would love to see them extend the invitation. Let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, look, it'd be understandable if he did, but, uh, but for a lot of reasons, I love that particular conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, for those who, um, who haven't read it, uh, a gem from, uh, I believe, The Nation uh, in the 90s uh, is Adolf Reed's original review of The Bell Curve. Uh, he's very funny about it in exactly the ways that you'd expect him to be, and it's, uh, it's worth reading. Thank you so much, uh, Matt. This, uh, this was great. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Uh, good luck on the endeavor. All right. Thanks, man. See you. See you. Thank you, Matt. Matt Leck is 
the host of the Literary Hangover podcast and the producer for The Michael Brooks Show. You can follow him on Twitter at at Matt Leck. Watch him every week on The Michael Brooks Show. Coming up is Harvey J.K., who is a historian and the author of several books, including Take Hold of Our History, FDR and Democracy, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, and Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. Harvey, outstanding. How are you doing today, Harvey? I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. We've had storms come through. The humidity's high, but I've been looking forward to seeing you, so I'm feeling good. Good. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. You know, I'm excited to, to talk to you. Um, you know, we've, um, you know, we've, we've overlapped, you know, a bit on the, uh, the Michael Brooks show and, and, you know, and I, I had a good conversation with you in Brooklyn when there was the last, uh, live show. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, but I've never really had a good chance to, uh, you know, to pick your brain about the, the stuff that you, you're most, um, you know, that you're most passionate about, about, you know, about radical history and, you know, what we can, what we can learn from, uh, radical, the radical tradition in American history, which is really what I was hoping to, uh, to talk to you about today. Um, so one way to kind of enter into this is, I don't know uh, if you've ever read uh, Philip Roth's novel, um, The uh, I Married a Communist. Uh, oh, I, I haven't, no. I, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very poorly read person in literature. In literature, very, very well read in history. Fair enough. Uh, so in that, in that book, um, there's, you know, a lot of it's about the, uh, as the title might suggest, the American Communist Party and McCarthyism and, you know, Ross Anger, you know, McCarthy yeah. at Witch Hunters. Uh, but one thing that actually comes up pretty extensively in the book uh, is that these like 1930s kind of popular front era communists uh, were, were really obsessed with uh, with Thomas Paine. Right? Yeah. So, uh, so why, yeah, I was does wondering that if- come up, Does that come up in the novel? That comes up extensively in the novel. I'm get you just made it that I have to read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you'll you'll enjoy the book. It's it's very good. Yeah. But um, uh, but I guess I guess I I think it might be that might be an interesting jumping off point for some of what we we're talking about talking about like like why is it that like out of all of the you know the the founders uh, you know the American revolutionaries uh, why is it that that Payne is one who um, the, the American left, you know, radicals have historically been so interested in? Okay, that's a, that, that is a good question. And it, it can be answered in a sort of, sort of direct, direct sort of list way. Uh, for example, he, he, he never owned slaves. How's that for a start? I mean, that's a pretty good start. Okay, number one. Number two, his first significant intervention, when he came over from, from England, and he was already almost middle-aged, he... Uh, he got he secured a job which was completely a, a complete sort of new thing for him as the editor of a new magazine in Philadelphia, and his very and he wrote a lot of things. But the very first thing he wrote of a of a direct political intervention sort was actually a call to bring an end to slavery in America. Okay, and it wasn't just and it wasn't one of those things that said we should end slavery and send African Americans or Africans back to Africa. It wasn't a colonizationist. He actually talked about the responsibility of providing education and land 
So, okay, that's worthy. So, so that's first of all. And, and by the way, Thomas Paine's writings were never out of print. And in the 1930s, um, the entire left was reading Thomas Paine from the liberals of the FDR New Deal administration over to the Communist Party. And in fact, Eleanor Roosevelt, just as a sidebar to that, Eleanor Roosevelt herself wrote a little book titled Moral, Democ Moral Democracy, something like that. And it was all about the American tradition and it's pretty clear that she was reading communist writers to enhance her ability to write about democracy. And the person she quoted the most, I think she devotes five pages in a 100 page book to Thomas Paine. So indeed, Philip Roth was, was right on to, be, to, to make something of Paine. I do have to read the novel. But, but it is the case that in every generation, every generation in American history, when radicals or, or even liberals, progressives, whatever we want to call them, whenever they united for struggle, whether it was for free thought, that is to, to, to make sure that the separation of church and state was really a separation of church and state. Mm. Abolitionists, uh, feminists, uh, labor unionists, socialists, progressives, anarchists, who am I leaving out as we go along? But you've got the idea, every single struggle, they always reach back to the revolution. There is that kind of sort of instinctive reaching back to the revolution in order to, if you like, bolster or validate their cause. And when you reach back to the revolution, inevitably you get, you not only go to the declaration's words, yeah. okay, all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you end up necessarily discovering and recovering Thomas Paine. I mean, Thomas Paine, you know, in school they teach you that Thomas Paine was the author of a pamphlet that incited the, the struggle for independence or turn the struggle of a, that was a rebellion into a revolution. But it's not just a revolution for independence. In fact, Payne once said, if the struggle was only about independence, it wouldn't have been worth pursuing. There was something like that. But the fact was that Payne actually argued for something that was rather unprecedented at the time. And that is he argued for creating a democratic republic. So if you go back to Thomas Payne and you're reading this pamphlet, which really does make the case that, that Americans had, excuse this for and most people on the left to get upset when I mention this, that Americans had a, a, a historic, a world historic opportunity to fight for human rights, not simply for British rights and, or for what would, might well be called later in, after the Constitution, American rights. And among the lines he, argue, he offers is, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. Yeah. Which, is, which has got to be the, the most absolutely true and absolutely untrue statement at one and the same time as a democracy. Yeah, that's also, it's also a nice echo there to the, um, the lyric from uh, Solidarity Forever, right? You know, we have power to make a new world out of the ashes of the old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, so, but but I just I, want to point out that when yeah. he says that, he, he actually talks about never since the, you know, the time of Noah have we had the opportunity to start over again, that kind of thing. And... And what really makes it significant is not just, I mean, Payne, Payne wasn't simply, you know, a genius writer. He wasn't just, I mean, he was a working class man, basically. Yeah. Um, but he had, but it, what it is is that he could speak in such a way that everyone understood, or he could write so that everyone understood him. And moreover, and this is, this is really the thing that, that I think is important, is that he actually was sort of holding up a mirror to Americans as to what they were already doing in their rebellion. So and he never claimed any originality, and essentially that's what he was doing. And I want to make it clear that 
if we think about the greatest of the revolutionary writers, and if we go next, say, to, to Karl Marx, I mean, if, yeah. you, if one reads the, look, Das Kapital is... is, is <laughs> not riveting, reading. Okay. Um, it's got its moments, but it's, it's not a page turner. Right. I mean, I never bother to have my students read, read Capital yeah. or even economic and philosophical manuscripts because mm. I'm talking about freshmen and sophomores going on. But to read the Communist Manifesto is to read something which is both historically questionable and historically true. He really is talking about what he sees taking place in the course of mid-19th century Europe and sees the possibilities that are, that are emergent there. And basically, that's what Paine did. He saw the struggles underway and he was saying to Americans, do you realize what you're doing? I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So yeah. that's why in every generation, when people look back to the revolution, they can find a fundamental hardcore, if you like, call for democratic revolution. And, and to whatever extent Americans remain, as I, I like to believe, radicals at heart, it links to that kind of Thomas Paine uh, pamphleteering. Yeah, um, and I think that's I think that's like really good to know and really good to think about, um, you know, because I I you know I always get a little annoyed like you know we aren't recording this that many weeks after the Fourth of July that there's like a certain kind of like leftist whose like response to that holiday is to um, you know is is to sort of um, say oh actually the American Revolution was like really bad you know because they were all you know slaveholders and this that and the other thing some of which is true right absolutely uh, you know absolutely. but uh but i i always think that it's it's not entirely true and it's definitely not like the emphasis right i think is wrong that uh that of course you shouldn't whitewash any of that but instead of sort of disdaining that right like if instead you could say look okay first of all don't be a weirdo about this, have a hot dog, enjoy some fireworks, you know, drink some, you know, drink some whiskey, you know, but yeah. they, but uh, enjoy, you know, enjoy the people you love, you know, don't be like the guy who's off the side muttering about it. But also um, instead of saying it's all that, right. You know, you could say, look, some of it is, uh, but there, there are also these, these strands in that history. There's also, you know, part of the stated ideals of that revolution and certainly the best of the revolutionaries, you know, like, like, like Payne, that, you know, there are a lot of points of continuity between that and what we want, right? That like one way uh, of thinking, you know, and, and, you know, I think Marx had a complicated relationship to this idea. Sometimes he talked this way, sometimes he criticized talking this way, but certainly in my view, right, you know, that like one way to think about the relationship between those kind of historical liberal democratic revolutions and what we want right now, you know, to, to create a more um, humane, more democratic, you know, uh, more economically equal, certainly society uh, is about uh, fulfilling kind of the unfinished business of those earlier democratic revolutions. And I think the pain stuff um, like ties into that in a really powerful way. Uh, one thing I really specifically wanted to hone in on um, in terms of thinking about different demands that people have made, even going back to then, right, is, uh, is that uh, pain, as I understand it, is essentially, and I'm sure you can disambiguate this, right, you know, but like in, in a sense, right, you know, is, is like a early advocate of something that is in some ways analogous to like a universal basic income. Can you speak on that? Yeah, I, and the reason I, I, I pull back for two reasons yeah, yeah. when I hear that. Yeah. One, as I 
to recall our dear friend Michael as, as I would say yeah. to Michael said, well, what about this Andrew Wang universal basic mm-hmm. income? What about, what would Payne say? And this came up when I was on rising yeah. uh, crystal wanted to know. And I said, I, I said, I'm not going to deny that one could derive an argument for universal basic income from Thomas Paine's arguments, but I think it's really, I think it's to avoid what Thomas Paine was really arguing for. Mm. I mean, Thomas Paine was the father of social democracy. And in the pamphlet, first of all, in his two volume pamphlet, Rights of Man, he moves decidedly in favor of social democracy. And what it, because he says that if we can get rid of it, because he's now back in England for a while, if we can get rid of the monarchy and the aristocracy and all think of the wealth that will be saved and think of the things we can do to attack poverty and lift up working people. <clears throat> but the other thing is, and this is even more important, in agrarian justice written a few, a, a few years later in the 1790s, Thomas Paine actually says that, and he was a deist, not an atheist. As a deist, he believed God had created the universe and the, and the earth, and that it was, he offered the creation as something we all had a share in, that is all were to share in that. And as a consequence, those who have come to monopolize the land, and keep in mind land and agriculture were the fundamentals in the late 18th century, those who come to occupy and own, you know, possess all this land, they owe, they owe us a payment. They owe us a tax. They owe not just an individual uh, kind of payment, but they own the, the entire community or, or nation a payment. So he said what needs to happen is we need, is we need to create a, a, a fund, call it mm. a community trust in the monopoly game version or a national treasury. And the taxes to be paid into there should be used, should be used for two kinds of projects or two kinds of programs, better said. One, every young person, and Payne was a feminist, or at least a proto-feminist. He had been very close to Mary Wollstonecraft during the years of the the French Revolution. She was very much inspired by him. He said, we should make sure that every young person, whether man or woman, boy or girl, on reaching the age of maturity should be given a grant, a sum of money, which would enable them, you know, to get an education or to buy land themselves or to set up in a business. That way you prevent poverty, period, okay? And then he said, there's, the other part of that fund should be used for the purpose of what in the 1930s or 20s they called old age pensions, we, came, we come to know as social security. And he's basically saying when, when people reach the age of, he didn't use the word retirement, 55, whatever it might be, that they should be given money so that they can live comfortably. So Payne is a social democrat. Okay, he didn't argue for dispossessing the landed, although I read a really good argument several years ago that said that Payne was really sort of saying, do this landed, landed folks, or we're going to come for your land next. Right. Okay. So in any case, so he's a social Democrat. Now, the, the other part of the problem with UBI is that, mm. as I remember saying to Michael, was that I can readily imagine, speaking of landed people, that landlords would immediately grab hold of the, the UBI payment by raising their rents on people. Right, 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 right. So it should be the case that what we're talking, it should be a kind of social democratic thing. And by the way, I mean, social democracy today, we can readily imagine, for example, I mean, think about taking Payne's ideas and expanding. So everyone talks about Medicare for all and the Democrats like Biden are doing the wimpy version of it. Well, we'll reduce the age of Medicare from what, 65 to 60. But how about if we say that everyone under the age of 18 has free health care? Let's start there. That would be 
to combat poverty at the beginning and to enable people at the beginning. I mean, I'm a, I, look, I'd go for Medicare. I don't even know if I'd wait, stay at Medicare for all. I like to think of it as something called all-American health care. We're all yeah, covered. Like, we pay our taxes, and we don't have to worry, okay? Like, like, the, like Britain's NHS, that kind of thing. Exactly. Having lived in England, I, can, I don't know if you've been, ever lived over there, but living right. over there was when I went to the dentist, it was taken care of. When I got mononucleosis, it was taken care of. Yeah, I haven't lived there, but my, uh, my, my sister um, is, is married to a British guy, and she's, she's lived there for many years, you know, and I've, I've certainly been over to visit. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's something that's incredibly liberating about, um, you know, living in that system, having the NHS card, knowing that like, you're never going to be charged or, I mean, really the only, you know, like even now, right. Like the, you know, with, with, with all of the, uh, inroads, you know, from, from Thatcher through new labor, you know, to, to Boris Johnson, all the inroads into that system and all the chipping away at it. Uh, even now, right? Like uh, the only the only money you're actually going to be charged in NHS hospitals for parking, and uh, Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn's Labor Party, uh, you know, when he was leading it, at least, you know, I don't, I don't know if they still are, but uh, one of their election demands was to abolish the parking fees, you know, because you shouldn't even <laughs> you shouldn't even have that, right? Imagine <laughs> having that be your problem. But uh, I, I guess one thread I, I did want to con- connect there, That's right? Sorry, when you're yeah. talking about. Uh, you know, Thomas Paine, you know, kind of as a proto-social Democrat uh, in his support for various kinds of redistribution, you know, um, like something like Social Security and so on. Uh, and I, I think making some very perceptive points about the problems with like Yang style UBI proposals. Um, and actually, I'd even add into that another problem with with those proposals is that most of what little leverage uh, ordinary people have within our economic system comes from their ability to organize in the workplace. Uh, and if you don't even, you know, if, if that's even that isn't there, right, then you're really in trouble, right? I mean, I kind of start thinking about, um, you know, pretentious reference, I know, but run with me, you know, I start thinking about like in the late Roman Republic when, you know, big landed estates, you know, bought up like most of the uh, small farms and see so all these people who were small farmers who are living in Rome and uh, and as as paupers and just living on like the daily bread ration, you know, like that's kind of what I think of sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'll just mention in favor of Thomas Paine once again in that regard, that Paine would never have even come to, to the American colonies in 1775. It had not been for the fact that when he had been working, he was actually working for the, for the government at the time. He was an excise officer. Well, yeah. And this was a very low paid, highly dangerous position. And his fellow excise officers knew of his talent with words, hearing him recite poetry, perhaps in a pub, something like that. And they asked him if he would actually lead a campaign to petition the government and the excise commission to raise the wages of the excise officers. And in his courageous foolishness, he said yes. And he went off to London. He wrote a petition, a five-page petition on you know, the needs of the case of the excise officers. Now, this, by the way, was utterly illegal, not just because he left his post. More, even more significantly, any notion of, of combining in the form of labor agitation and a labor union was utterly illegal. So here he is in London petitioning and lobbying. And eventually, he, by the way, met a lot of very important people, all of whom embraced him, but the government was outraged and they fired him, or as the English say, they sacked him. And he basically had, he, he had become friendly with Benjamin Franklin, who spent a good deal of his own life in London. And Franklin said, you know what, maybe it's time, you have an interest in America, maybe it's time you go over to America. 
So in <laughs> essence, he, he got is the is the labor organizer or labor unionist who gets sacked and decides he's going to start a revolution. You might say so. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fantastic. I I did not know that story. That's wonderful. Um, on the you know, and speaking of of labor, um, so I, I guess one thing you know that I I also wanted to tie this into was that you know there's there's been this kind of longstanding uh, you know pre Andrew Yang right you know debate oh, yeah. on uh, on the left uh, about whether the idea that we should have some kind of like universal support for having some kind of livelihood uh, should take the form of something like a UBI. Um, or it should take the form of something like a universal jobs guarantee, uh, which um, is also, I know something, you know, that, that I've, I've heard you talk about before. Uh, and, and, you know, we've only got a minute now, but I really hope you're going to come back to talk more about this with me. I, I'll, I'll be back all the time to be with you. All right. Uh, so in, um, you know, and this, this, this other demand, this universal jobs guarantee, this jobs for all demand, right. Uh, is something that uh, was uh, historically advocated by a lot of the uh, civil rights movement. Um, so, in um, in the um, in the civil uh, <laughs> sorry uh, in uh, in that case, right? Like one thing I remember, for example, right? So uh, when I was um, and this is actually perfect, right? If you heard that digging, that was that was Bhaskar telling me that uh, that that he's going to be like another ten minutes, which which I'm which I'm glad about because that oh, that means nice. that that means that we can we can follow this thread, right? You know, so exactly. uh, he was asking it, and then it would have been all the better two generations of socialists, but that's beside. The point. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, um, and uh, and so in any case. Um, like I remember, for example, right? So, so you know, I grew up at a time period where, you know, maybe not in every state, but at least in Michigan where I grew up, you know, uh, you know, there, you know, we 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 got a fair amount of like, you know, there'd be like a Martin Luther King Day assembly where you'd you'd hear yeah. like a certain amount of the, about the civil rights movement, and it was all good, but it was all also in retrospect severely incomplete. Uh, so, in in a lot of ways, right? One of the most obvious of which. Uh, is that it tended to uh, to skip uh, from um, from the um, from the march on Washington uh, to Martin Luther King's assassination, yeah. right? Which 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 happens four years later. So you never heard it, you know like a phrase that I never heard in any of these assemblies was "poor people's campaign," oh. uh, you know. For example, uh, I also never heard the word Vietnam. Right, you know, mentioned mentioned yeah. in these contexts, yeah. you know, because again, the version that they they teach school kids, you know, like like does like like basically skips anything that would still be controversial. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I even remember, like some old social studies textbook when I was growing up, uh, that uh, you know was looking, you know, what they tell you about the March of Washington is basically the "I Have a Dream" speech, yeah. uh, and but there are accompanying pictures, there are photos of the march, and in those photos. Uh, one thing that you notice that that's really interesting, if you look closely, is uh, how many of the signs have UAW on them, right? United Auto yes, Workers. That's right. Uh, and another thing uh, that you might realize till later is that they very rarely give you the full name of the march, which is the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, we could spend the whole next half hour, and I don't want to take up Vasquez's uh, time. But here's the thing: 
And I want to, I want to, I want to go back to the 1940s. We can mm, go to the 30s. Again. Yeah, yeah, do it. But in 1944, FDR gave what really is sort of the culmination of his entire presidency in the sense that even as a candidate in 32, he was calling for an economic declaration of rights. In 1941, he issued his very famous uh, State of the Union message, which included a call for the four freedoms, which included freedom from want and freedom from fear. But in 1944, he calls for the creation of an economic bill of rights. And one of those rights, and I, just, I actually knew, knew this might come up, okay? It was the right to a useful and remunerative job and the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing, et cetera. In other words, the right to a job and the right to a job at a living wage, which he first argued for in 1933. Now, what's really important here is that he repeated the fact that this was meant to be the Economic Bill of Rights for all Americans. The, everyone knows the FDR administration did not make a big issue of civil rights. The FDR administration believed the idea was you would do a a unit, whatever it would be, it would be universal. And that was his way, literally, of trying to create civil rights for all of his failings. Now, A. Philip Randolph always heard these things and he always responded to FDR and they knew each other. And, and when, when the FDR administration began to prepare for the post-war years, they actually called for full employment, which was to say the right to a job. Now, in 1940, sorry, in 1963, it's A. Philip Randolph, the black and black civil rights and decidedly labor leader who was himself a socialist, who actually organized the, with the uh, sleeping car porters union, right? Right, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, right? And they they're the organizers of the March on Washington. And people should try to read Randolph's own speech that day. And by the way, Martin Luther King was not involved in organizing it though he gave the speech that has become the iconic speech of the day. Now, it's also worth noting, if we go back to 1943-44, that Martin Luther King Jr. was a very young, brilliant, precocious kid, and he entered university at like 14 or 15 years of age. He was uh, uh, the, the, one of the major black colleges. I'm blank, all of a sudden, I'm blanking, down in Atlanta, not far Morehouse. from where you are. What's that? Morehouse? Morehouse, right? thank you very much, yep. Morehouse. And while he was there, A. Philip Randolph came to Morehouse and did a short residency and did a series of lectures. And this was also the time, of course, of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights speech. And, and King's father was very much a pro-Roosevelt. I can't call him a Democrat because that would imply a Southern Democrat, but he decided the, well, this was a New Deal family, okay? F, so Martin Luther King clearly is cultivating in his own mind an idea of social democracy or democratic socialism. So when we come to 1963, you've got A. Philip Randolph, Martin Luther King, and Walter Ruther, as you said, UAW leader, who is literally the guy who writes the checks to underwrite the March on Washington that brought 250,000 people to DC. And here's the next thing. In the following year after that speech, and soon, you get A Martin Luther King will soon after the Civil Rights Act is enacted and the voting rights, he's going to pursue the poor people's campaign. And he's also going to have issued um, um, a minority people's bill of rights call. Similarly, A. Philip Randolph issues a freedom budget. And the freedom budget is a, literally a call to, make, to end poverty and make freedom from want true in America. And it includes over and over again, the imperative of full employment basically a guaranteed right to a job. If not, 
in private industry, then decidedly the federal government will create those jobs, not make work jobs, but serious jobs, pay, paying a living wage. So this is all tied together. And, and by the way, I'll just leave it at this and we can argue about this sometime. I think it would be imperative right now for socialists, DSA and others, yeah. to do everything in their power to, to connect to the Black Lives Matter movement in the spirit of A. Philip Randolph and, and create this, this demand for social democracy. I think it's yeah. imperative. No, I, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so, in fact, I mean, actually, the more I, I've thought about it lately, uh, the more that... that slogan, right? The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom seems brilliant to me uh, because it connects together um, the particularities of the, of the movement for full civil and, uh, and legal equality for black people. You know, that's, that's the freedom part uh, and doesn't, you know, without, um, you know, dismissing that or saying that's, that's not important or that'll have to wait or anything like that. Uh, but also instead of just having it be narrowly about that right you know uh there's it's tied in to to an economic agenda that is certainly going to disproportionately uh benefit uh black people because black people have been disproportionately screwed over by the economic system in the united states um you know all the reasons i was talking about earlier with uh with with matt you know when uh, we were talking about uh the bell curve uh but also Right. You know, it's it's just it's screwed over a lot of other people, too. Right. You know that you, you can you can build uh, a broad uh, cross racial uh, alliance to around a lot of these things. That's not just a matter of altruism. Right. Like, oh, this this guy over here is suffering. You should be a good person. You should help him. Right. Which, of course, that's great, too. Right. But like it's particularly politically powerful when you can when you can say, hey, we've all been screwed over by this system and here's an agenda that's going to correct that for all of us. Right. You know, there's, there's a, there's a reason, you know, that, I mean, King knew what he was doing with the poor people's campaign, that that was that, that, that just referenced poor people in general, right. You know, that, that um, a vastly larger uh, portion of black people than white people, you know, were and are living in poverty because of the economic legacy of um, America's history of de jure racial apartheid. Uh, but uh, it's also true, right, that lots and lots and lots of other people are poor. Uh, and what you want to do, you know, if, if you're not just sort of more, you know, trying to make a moral statement, you're actually trying to, trying to change the world, right, is to, um, you know, is to try to make the biggest, broadest alliances that you can uh, around shared interests, say you know if if we're we're all being screwed over, right? You know, let's 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 work together without without neglecting those important points about you know civic and legal equality, whether that means ending segregation uh, or it means you know finishing the unfinished business of that '60s rights revolution when it comes to things like racial bias and law enforcement. Uh, but uh, instead of leaving it there, right? Because that there's something a little bit odd about that view right that like we should that we should be happy if the uh percentage of people who are begging in the street for mutual racial group right was proportional to the population right that that would count as a victory or that you know the number of people uh who are in um the number of the number of people who are uh 
who are victimized by the police even, right? Because like when we talk about George Floyd, you know, whose murder started that, that wave of protests, you know, riots, you know, civil disturbance, um, that I think it's important to remember that the specific context that this happened in was, uh, you know, Floyd, you know, was a black worker who had been laid off, you know, because of, uh, because of the of coronavirus. Uh, uh, and what he was uh, choked to death for uh, was trying to pass a bad $20 bill, right? So th- this is a, uh, you know, this is a symptom of a lot of social pathologies, but, but certainly even though, you know, even though the poverty is itself um, unevenly distributed between different racial groups because of all this history we've been talking about, uh, it's also just a symptom of poverty per se. And it's a symptom of the way that uh, there has been this, this calculation uh, that, you know, that was made, uh, you know, in elite circles, you know, uh, especially, you know, spe- you know, especially starting in, you know, the 80s and in the Reagan era and, you know, continuing after that, uh, that rather than expanding what little social democracy we've had in America uh, to try to reduce poverty, uh, it, instead it would be both politically and financially cheaper uh, to, to focus on uh, more aggressive policing, uh, a bigger carceral state, to, to carcerally manage the symptoms of poverty. That, you know, that in other words, you know, there are all these social ills that go with you know, extreme poverty and economic inequality, uh, and if you're not going to do anything about the underlying conditions, right, you know, then, then you, can, uh, you can at least, like, lock up a lot of the people, you know, who, uh, who have, um, you know, who are experiencing and trying to cope, you know, with the things that come, you know, come from that. Right. And there's a line I just wanted to, uh, to read you, you know, Bhaskar's going to be on in just a couple minutes, but um, there's an article, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, uh, but if not, I'd really recommend it. It's by the uh, uh, historian I'm sure you're familiar with, Barbara Fields, uh, and it's in uh, Descent magazine. Uh, it's called The uh, Death of Hannah Pfizer. And, uh, and there's this, this paragraph in there that I just love, which is, therefore, those seeking genuine democracy must fight like hell to convince white Americans that what is good for black people is also good for them. Reining in murderous police, investing in schools rather than prisons, providing universal health care, including drug treatment and rehabilitation for addicts in the rural heartland, raising taxes on the rich and ending foolish wars are policies that would benefit a solid majority of the American people. Such an agenda could be the basis for a successful political coalition rooted in the real conditions of American life, which were disastrous before the pandemic and are now catastrophic. Uh, and that, that seems like a really powerful statement to me of the kind of politics that I think you're suggesting with these, um, you know, like talking about what we could learn from, from the civil rights movement and the way that it managed to, you know, um, to tie in these demands for full civic and legal equality for everybody, which are incredibly important with the demand that instead of just um, distributing misery in a fairer way, we do something about the misery itself. Give you the way to you can say you can segue okay we'll wrap yeah. it up with this martin luther king in the years just be well in 67 in fact made it a point of indicating in one of his books that the quote that he turned to when times were particularly tough was thomas Paine's words we have it in our power to begin the world over again there we go there perfect we go, right uh so 
so thank you so much, so much, Harvey. Uh, we are going to have to do this again uh, very soon. Uh, they, I, I got a lot out of this conversation. Uh, this, uh, you know, this is good. We need to talk again. Okay, you bet. Thank you very much. Give my best to Bhaskar. All right, will do, Harvey. Thank you, Harvey. Harvey J.K. is a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, the author of several books, including Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, and a recent one that you can get from Zero Books called Take Hold of Our History. You can follow him on Twitter at at Harvey J.K. That's K-A-Y-E. Coming up next, the founding editor of Jacobin, my boss, Bhaskar Sungara. We go. You found hey, it. Hey, how, how are you? Sorry, sorry about the uh, the slight delay. Uh, no problem. You know, uh, in my culture, no, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm from New York. I have no real excuse. Oh, fair enough. I'm, I'm uh, sorry. I, I just didn't want to be subjected to a white male temporality. That, no, that was really what this was about. I, I, I really. I I should be apologizing for subjecting you to that temporality by texting you to see if you're ready. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for this podcast though. This is great. Um, this is this is short, really needed. Um, there's not enough left wing podcasts out there. <laughs> but no, I'm, 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, this, this should be this should be uh, great. Uh, your lineup that just right off at least is is good. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, where you, uh, well, actually, I guess you're not right this second, maybe, but the, uh, but in, you know, uh, where you normally live, I think that uh, I think that the, you, there are neighborhoods where you can't throw a rock without hitting a podcaster, uh, but uh, but nevertheless, you know, I uh, hope this uh, this offers something valuable. Uh, certainly got a lot out of the conversation with uh, with Harvey about the uh, history of American social democracy. And I just watched a great um, stay at home that you did for Jacobin. So you guys have been doing this uh, stay at home series since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, where usually uh, you'll be hosting. Sometimes other people will have sub for you a couple times. Uh, and there'll be some left wing thinker who will come in there and give a presentation for about half an hour. Uh, and then you'll ask them some questions. Uh, but this time you did it yourself, um, so you weren't limited to the half an hour. And uh, and, and I teased our book, um, the book that me, you, and Mike Beggs are working on, and people will hear a lot more about in the next year um, as we kind of get further along in the, the process. But uh, a book laying out a vision of a feasible socialism, which should be out somewhere spring 2022. Yeah, absolutely. Excited about that. Uh, and... I guess thinking about feasible socialism, you know, the, the talk that you gave for the, for the stay at home uh, was about uh, social democracy and how we should think about social democracy. And if you think, all right, so social democracy uh, is, you know, at least it's a word that's meant a lot of things, you know, to different people at different times, but the way we usually use it now, right. You know, we're, we're talking about um, 
you know, movements, efforts, you know, by leftists and socialists to uh, reform capitalism by doing things like uh, like instituting social programs to um, to you know to provide for social rights like uh, like healthcare and housing, uh, and of course that's what I was talking about with with Harvey. But you know, but you mentioned the the feasible socialism book, right? So so you know, this is a book that we're writing, uh, you me and Mike Beggs about how we could get beyond capitalism entirely, right? You know, with, without just sort of doing the thing that the left sometimes falls into doing, where we sort of treat socialism as this word that stands for some uh, destination politically where we've achieved all the good things and gotten rid of all the bad things, uh, but actually thinking about a realistic society that could actually exist uh, without, um, you know, without having to have society divided into workers and capitalists at all, right? Right. And, and so I think a, a, a reasonable question that somebody might have right, listed to this is, well, hold on. So why are you guys so excited about social democracy if you think that it's possible to, to get past capitalism entirely, that we could have a society uh, where, where workers own their own enterprises uh, and, and we, didn't, we didn't have the separate class of owners at all, uh, then, hey, you know, what, what's this, what's, what's all this interest in, uh, in messing with and, you know, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic of capitalism, right? You know, why, why are we so interested in the social democratic reformism? And I know it's a big topic, but I was hoping you could just speak a little bit to how those, those two goals relate to each other, you know, reforms within the existing system and trying to get past it entirely. Well, I think for starters, it's worth saying that when we talk about social democracy, we're not just talking about stuff the government does or any system that has a lot of state uh, intervention. Like we wouldn't call, for example, the French system under de Gaulle or the forms of planning that were utilized in Taiwan and South Korea um, and other countries that, that actually played, played a useful role stimulating growth, but certainly weren't egalitarian in their intent. We wouldn't call that social democracy. So in particular, when we talk about the social democratic project, we're talking about projects that were led by workers' parties, parties with roots in the working class that were, had initially at their core the impetus of class struggle in the early years. And then by the end, by the time the contradictions of social democracy, you could say, reached their peak in the 1970s, also had a rash of working class um, um, upsurge. So the bottom line is that it's the experience of working class governance and working class political movements, both in state power and also kind of the extra parliamentary parts like trade unions and trade confederations and, and affiliated social movements um, outside of power connected to them um, within the political economy of capitalism. So still obviously within the constraints of capitalism but attempting to administer some change within it. So in the same way that as socialists, we should be interested in um, Chavez's Venezuela or uh, what's happened in Bolivia and other, other countries that have attempted to bring about, at the very least, reform programs from below with progressive social bases, we should be interested in these attempts uh, as well in the global, global north. And if you can't, when the class power to achieve something like Medicare for all in the United States or achieve the rudiments of a social democratic program as far as a jobs guarantee and the rest, 
then how are you going to get the class power to put on the uh, agenda demands for worker uh, self-determination, worker um, um, ownership of the means of production in the workplace? So um, it seems to me that the two are absolutely integrally connected. Though part of understanding the contradictions and limits of social democracy is thinking about how these reformist parties of social democracy were, had their limits were good, weren't great, not because they administered reforms, but because their political practice and their structures couldn't take them beyond those reforms. They, it couldn't, they would open the door to more radical questions, but they would not be able to answer them fully. So we should clarify what our criticism from the left is. It isn't uh, against these important kind of building back uh, blocks to, you know, kind of building uh, state, um, uh, some sort of left workers power. In the United States, obviously, we are so far from the limits of social democracy. We are so far from achieving anything. The left really needs to tally victories to tell people that, you know, if you support left candidates, you aren't just registering a protest. It's connected to real um, material differences in your, your lives. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, just, I guess, to make the conversation less classy, I, I often think of uh, the scene in uh, Kill Bill where Uma Thurman is uh, escaping from the hospital and, uh, and she's, um, she's still sort of paralyzed and she's just trying to get herself to, uh, to wiggle her big toe, you know, so she could eventually, you know, start walking and get in the car and go off to slaughter her enemies. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think there's, there's something, you know, there's something there, right. That like, uh, that just achieving, um, you know, Canadian style healthcare in the United States, which, you know, I mean, it's absurd to talk about that as just in, in the sense that we're all living through this grisly real world uh, advertisement for the importance of, uh, of universal health care. Uh, but it's, it's also like just achieving that is going to take monumental political struggle uh, that, you know, I mean, we just saw the DNC platform committee uh, vote, uh, vote down Medicare for all like 125 to 36 uh, which is amazing because it's a it's a party platform. It's like a wish list for for uh, for the party faithful that you know that like almost nobody else actually reads. You know, be like the safest, most like symbolic way to concede the mm -hmm. point, but they're not willing to do it even there, which shows you how much of an uphill climb you know we've uh, we've got on there. Uh, but certainly, I think if if we can you know uh, start to achieve some things that that really make a difference to people. And, and by the way, should also say that like, certainly in the kind of socialism uh, that, that we want, that, you know, that we think is realistic and, you know, and, and we could imagine happen, happening in the near future, in our lifetimes, right? You know, it's like uh, peace in our time, socialism in our time, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, we, you know, having worker ownership of, of firms would be fantastic. It would be amazing. It would be the first time we didn't have society divided between a ruling class and a subordinate class since the agricultural revolution, uh, but it wouldn't mitigate the need for things like a national health service. Right, exactly. So some of these decommodifications are things we are taking, you know, the meaning of decommodification, right? We're, we're taking it from the market. We're making sure that people can enjoy it as social rights, but um, what would the health system like look like in a place like the United Kingdom under full socialism, you know, quote unquote. Uh, well, 
it would probably look a lot like the NHS, right? Or at least the way the NHS used to be in its peak in the 70s, you know, before they added additional user fees and, and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's just very straightforward why we should care about, about these, these things. And also, I, I'm in general very comfortable with the fact that political leaders like AOC and Bernie and a host of people who support them call themselves democratic socialists. So their aspirations are, in many ways, social democratic, in that, at least when it comes to AOC, at no point in her life has she talked about really worker ownership, the means of production, and so on. You know, Bernie, for large chunks of his life, openly advocated for some sort of socialization there. And I think if you probably catch him in private, he might right. not back down. He might say, okay, well, it can't be old school nationalization. Maybe it has to be this or that form. But um, he probably just thinks it's not feasible. Uh, I don't think he's really repented from any of his prior positions. But, you know, the left is so weak in this country. Socialism, I think, has a bigger danger of falling back into the ghetto of just extreme sectarian self-isolation. And that's a bigger danger than having socialism be so extremely ill-defined that it means any advocation of decommodification. Um, so I'd rather, in other words, have a broad movement that calls itself socialist, that fights day-to-day -day for social democratic reforms, and then to that movement make the argument that we need to go beyond social democracy. I think that's a great starting point for us to be on the on the left but obviously yeah yeah socialism we don't just mean what a lot of bernie crats do when they say they're socialists and they support small business and they believe in a mix of you know capitalism and socialism that's why they're democratic socialism i think that's a common sense of you know several million bernie crats in this country and we have to work from that common sense yeah absolutely uh liza featherstone jackman columnist could be coming on in about 10 minutes uh you maybe still does do this uh, advice column for the, uh, for the nation where there was one that I love from like back in 2016 uh, where uh, the person who was writing in was like, Hey, my friend, uh, you know, calls himself a socialist, but you know, but he, you know, he, he listens to all these lame, you know, he watches all these lame commentators on MSNBC and, uh, and, and, you know, and yet he doesn't really understand what it means. And, you know, how do I break it to him, right? That he's not a real socialist. Uh, and, and her answer was basically that socialism, I think those were her, her words, uh, isn't like uh, your favorite indie band that's like not cool anymore because too many people like it, right? You know, that, uh, yeah. that we're not going to be able to achieve any of our, any of our political goals, unless, uh, in, in you know, unless this breaks through to a much bigger category of people. And, you know, you could, you know, it was, it was an advice column answer. It didn't go on for that long. But, like, I think you could expand the point in ways you were just suggesting by saying, look, um, which is more productive, right? Standing off in a corner somewhere saying, hey, we're real socialists, right? Mm -hmm. Not like, you know, not like you pretenders, you know. So, mm -hmm. like, don't you go, you know, be calling yourself that. Uh or saying, hey, welcome comrades, you know, we, you know, when we use this term, we mean some stuff that maybe goes beyond what you mean, but like, uh, but we also see you as, as political allies and we want to like fight together for all the stuff that we do both agree on. And actually, even on the AOC point, by the way, um, I think that's mostly true, although there have been a couple of interesting instances uh, in which uh, she has um, 
gesture to the direction of, of something that actually does deal with questions about the workplace donorship. Mm -hmm. um, most notably on Martin Luther King Day this year, she was uh, doing a discussion with mm -hmm. uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates um, where they started talking about Jeff Bezos's charitable giving. And she said, hey, I don't, you know, like we don't want Bezos's money or presumably what she meant is we don't just want Bezos's money. Bezos's money would be a nice start. Uh, you know, we, we want his power, you know, if, if he really wants yes, to be exactly. a big person, yes. he should, he should turn Amazon into a worker co-op, uh, which, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whatever you think about the limitations of, of, of a, you know, AOC's politics or the ways that she's imperfect, that's not a sentence I would have expected to hear from a sitting Congresswoman probably in my lifetime. If you told me that a couple years earlier, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I think that we have a great starting point compared to where we were five years ago. But fundamentally, as socialists, we should acknowledge the division between socialism today as a largely intellectual current and a subcultural current in American political life. You know, before it wasn't even that. Right. It was we were run out of academia and we weren't even large enough to be a subculture. We were a sub subculture, you know, um, we weren't like the Harry Potter fan club. We were like the people who like went out to play Quidditch on broomsticks or something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, but there's that division that's emerged between socialism as an intellectual current and social movements and um, the workers movement as it exists. Mm. Right. Um, and our job as socialists is to get to the point where we can merge together, fuse together those currents so we could speak of them as one and the same. And when you think about the history of especially early, early European uh, social democracy, the early social democratic parties, it was that combined workers movement. When you think about what certain national liberation movements have become, it was a fusing together of all those elements. When you think about what Mass and these other parties, uh, Mass and Bolivia and these other parties were, it's a fusing together of trade union and social movement and the political socialist currents together into a mass uh, formation. And part of the problem today is that we need to both be confident in our mission, confident in what we're doing, but also aware of how weak we are. And it's a difficult thing to combine, but if you're not aware of how weak you are, then you might be able to pretend, oh, look around me, there's plenty of workers here. Half the people in my DSA <laughs> chapter uh, are wage workers who have part-time jobs and uh, feel all these sorts of other things. Um, the depiction of DSA as, um, you know, largely middle-class people is wrong, right? You could say things like that, and you might be right in the micro-instances, but you're missing a wider truth, a wider point, which is that the left in the U.S. is isolated from a, from a mass base, and we need to try to go out there and get one. And I'm less afraid of mistakes in the direction of a vulgarization of our ideas or mistakes in the direction of a mainstreaming of our ideas, as long as it doesn't mean uh, to use very old left language, very obscure left language, class collaboration, you know, as long as it doesn't mean sitting down at the table with Jeff Bezos and figuring out some sort of corporate scheme to, you know, do this, that, or, or what, then I'm very comfortable with um, what AOC is doing, what Bernie is doing, what a lot of the other figures associated with DSA are are doing um and you know we just have to keep pressing forward in this environment we can't go back to even 2015 you know even the environment before bernie where you had the return of of protests but 
it wasn't crystallized around a clear and coherent demand to win majoritarian uh, support. And that's, that's what we constantly have to search for when it comes to everything we're fighting for. You know, obviously not just things in the workplace and Medicare, but fights against oppression uh, of all kinds. You know, these just need to be tied to concrete material uh, demands. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and this, this goes back to something I was talking about with, with, with Harvey, right? I mean, that kind of genius of that civil rights movement slogan about, you know, jobs and freedom, you know, March on Washington for jobs and freedom, you know, that, that it, it uh, ties together the particularity of uh, demand for full civic and legal equality for, for everybody, right? You know, across all identity categories uh, with an economic agenda that is maybe going to disproportionately benefit the people who've been the greatest victims of the current system, but is also just going to benefit most people uh, as, as a general rule, which, um, you know, which just seems like, you know, it's, it's not a big like Marxist insight or anything, but, you know, but does seem to be true that the, you know, that if you can uh, appeal to the perceived material interests of the majority of the population, mm -hmm. uh, you're a lot more likely to win. Uh, I, I do want to just pivot for a minute uh, to, since we kind of referred to it earlier, but uh, but I don't, I don't know if people get, really get a good sense from that uh, of of what uh, winning might look like. Now, obviously, like we just said, even achieving you know Canadian style Medicare for all in the United States, uh, you know, is is going to be an epic struggle. Uh, the idea that, you know, okay, maybe if we eventually push social democracy to its limits, we get a situation where you either have to retreat from what's already been achieved or you have to go beyond capitalism entirely. Mm -hmm. But of course, in the U.S. context, if you're living in the real world, we are hilariously and tragically far from being at that crossroads, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, the limits of, of social democracy are nowhere in sight. But if we, but if we imagine a situation where they were, uh, where like, uh, for example, something you talk about in your, your talk, right? You know, was was, um, you know, the most advanced, you know, Nordic social democracies uh, at the point where there were starting to be schemes proposed uh, to uh, to do things that would uh, that would go by beyond uh, mm -hmm. capitalism entirely. And then you think, okay, well, what would actually taking the route not taken look like? Right. You know, that like if 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 you think about, mm -hmm. all right, you know, we we know what retreat from what's already been achieved looks like, because sadly, we've seen that all over the place. Right. That's that's a very familiar story. Uh, but well, uh, I, th I, yeah. I think the route not taken would be a route that brings in questions of power and ownership sooner. Um, in other words, what the Swedes and other forms of social democracy settle for is what they described as a functional socialism. So they achieved actually a to a huge measure, an egalitarian distribution of wealth. But an egalitarian distribution of wealth isn't the same thing as an egalitarian distribution of power. There was a time in the 50s and 60s when that distinction seemed purely ideological. But what in fact happened was the inegalitarian distribution of power led to a rollback of the distribution of wealth. So if you want a sustainable social democracy, you have to push towards democratic socialism because you have to push towards a condition where you don't have a class of people who have a vested interest in uh, rolling back the rights of, of, of labor. And you don't have this contradiction, to use very old kind of uh, Marxist language, between um, the 
class of owners and the class of laborers. And in many ways, giving workers power over production is a way of resolving that tension and that antagonism in society. Of course, there'll still be other politicized antagonisms. There'll still be maybe the tension between a region that's very wealthy and a region that needs to have some transfers of wealth to that region. There'll still be uh, contradictions between town and country. There'll still be contradictions between workers and different worker owners in different sectors of various levels of, of profitability that are taxed at different rates and whatnot. But those are political problems that can be resolved in the framework of, of of the state, of, of bargaining, of, of any sorts of other ways, but they're not as ingrained as the tensions that arose in these countries between um, a small group of, of, of capitalists that felt their profits being squeezed, a, a group of workers who felt like they deserved more rights from vis-a-vis uh, -vis kind of their bosses, but also from the society as a whole, um, uh, public sector workers and private sector workers, all these tensions. So. All this led to the unraveling of a lot of the social democratic arrangement. I think we have to be careful and not state that it's all been undone. You know, a huge portion of the wealth of these countries are still going towards social ends. They're still funding pension and healthcare and education um, and to a far greater extent than it is even in a place like the, like the United States and other, other advanced capitalist countries that didn't have the experience of social democracy. But I think that's the key thing. Think about questions of power and ownership early rather than just as a culmination. So we don't want to rerun uh, social democracy and just sit in power from 1930 to 1970 before we even begin to propose um, more radical distributions of, of, of power. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, um, you know, that, that we, we do want to learn from the mistakes of past social democratic movements, but we also do need to start with social democracy, right? You, you can't walk without crawling and, you know, all, all the cliched metaphors there. Yes. But, but it needs to be a form of social democracy rooted in class struggle, rooted in the same thing that gets you those more radical things. It can't be Gaulism or a form of kind of state, statist um, um, intervention. Because I think in our lifetime, we will see real Trumpism. So Trump himself wasn't a believer, let's say, in what Bannon believed in and what some parts of his coalition believed in. And we'd be in a much more scary place if we had a racist, xenophobic um, leadership that was actually willing to deficit finance and willing to, to, to give jobs and, and, and buy off segments of the, the working class that way. Luckily, Trump um, is really just uh, a bastard in every sense. He has very little concern even for his, his you know, some of his alleged constituents. So uh, we, we dodged a bullet there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I guess I just also say that, you know, for, for anybody who until the spring of 2022 or, you know, whenever the, uh, the feasible socialism book comes out, uh, wants to get a little bit of a sense of, of what some of the best developed ideas about what, you know, the running part of the first you crawl, then you walk, then you run, you know, might actually look like, uh, and, and what a left agenda that actually did something about these questions of, uh, of, of, you know, workplace autonomy, of, of power structurally uh, within the economy looked like. Um, your, uh, your book, your earlier book, The Socialist Manifesto, uh, the first chapter uh, is very good on that. And also as a uh, longtime resident of, of New Jersey in the past, I, I really appreciate that the, uh, the fictional class struggle social democratic movement in the first chapter of that book is called Bon Joviism. I enjoyed that. Uh, yeah, I'm a uh, but but it's Springsteenism that's the that's a that's a social democracy. You know, Bon Jovi is false consciousness. I think everybody. Knows. 
Epstein <laughs> is 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 the true the, the true ruler of New Jersey. You know, it's it's uh I guess which one's Turnpike and which one's Parkway? Anyway, that's that's for another discussion. I'm sure Liza actually probably has has an opinion on that in particular, but I should let you two uh, get get to it and maybe uh, even having Liza on the screen reminds me that we should actually probably do do a nice Jacobin YouTube panel at some point with us three and maybe a, another good interlocutor. That would be great. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming on, brother. Really All right, appreciate take it. Take care. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you, Bhaskar. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founding editor of Jacobin. Watch him on Jacobin's YouTube channel. Coming up next is Liza Featherstone, who's a freelance journalist and the author of Selling Women Short, the landmark battle for women's rights at Walmart. She is also a columnist for Jacobin. And we are going to be talking about her article, DSA electeds are carrying on the socialist tradition in New York. How are you doing today, Liza? Very well. How are you, Ben? I'm, I'm good. This has been really good. Um, and and yeah, I was excited. Uh, by the way, there was a question somebody asked uh, about using capitalist decline to take ownership of mass media. Uh, I'd, I'd say, um, you know, Bhaskar just referred to the Jacobin YouTube channel. It's a mundane answer, but you know, it's a, uh, I think, I think building that up, right. You know, these efforts at, at more, you know, left media and more places, you know, is a, uh, is a pretty good start. And, um, I recently read a, uh, something you wrote for Jacobin, uh, about, uh, these, these recent, uh, socialist victories in uh, New York uh, state assembly elections, or I guess primaries, but primaries in places where the primary is the election. Yeah, in our case, they've, they've basically won. Right. <laughs> uh, and I mean, one thing is like, it's just nice to read. I mean, first of all, right, it's just nice right now to read about any kind of victory because um, the last year, you know, has been pretty grim in a lot of ways. Um, after uh, the Absolutely. defeat of the Labour Party last year in the UK. It's a point where Jeremy Corbyn's Lieutenant John McDonnell uh, said, look on the bright side. Usually when socialist revolutions are defeated, everybody's taken to a soccer stadium and shot. Uh, <laughs> and that, that feeling that if there's a bright side, it's something like that, right? Yeah, been... exactly. Or at least we're not, we're not in the soccer stadium getting <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, I, I've, I've definitely been feeling that a lot in the months between the Nevada caucus and now. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but reading your, your article, made me feel good. So, uh, and, and it was also just like a really nice, um, just a nice piece of writing, you know, like taking like this, like nice little history lesson and, and, you know, doing all those things that the writing instructors say about showing, not telling, you know, to kind <laughs> of like say something about how we might learn from that. Right. You know, while, while just being understated and, and nicely done. Um, but but I guess like just just first of all so so who are these people who uh, who just won these uh, state assembly primary elections? 
Yeah. So, um, well, I'll say as as well as being a um, a Jacobin columnist, I'm also a DSA member. So I'm just um, unabashedly, um, um, you know, um, biased towards um, the greatness of these people. Um, so I just, you know, not to make people feel that we are sneaking anything on them. Um, so um, they're um, they're a really um, great group of people. We reelected. Um, Julia Salazar. Um, she mm-hmm. was already in the state senate. She was our first, um, um, our, our first um, DSA um, person um, to to get in there, and she really, um, in a very short time, did um, did great work. Um, I um, although we have a really um, vigorous tenants' rights movement here. Um, I really do not think we would have gotten the phenomenal package of reforms um, expanding tenants' rights, um, which you know, which hadn't been done in decades. I mean, really, um, you know that 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 movement is just always on the defensive, just always like keeping something bad from happening right. <laughs> rather than actually able to um, to to push forward and um, really um, with um, with with Julia and uh, as well as some progressives um, in the state senate, they were um, and the, the the movement was really invigorated and it was a you know a, a dual process the streets mm. and the and, and the legislators um yes. and uh um so so julia had a lot of successes to point to and was real and is extremely popular in her district um and was reelected um easily um and um which which i should say is fantastic because if anybody remembers when she was first elected that you know did not seem like a sure thing to put it you know like yeah. Well, you know, that was a fascinating situation um, because, um, you know, sometimes we media people uh, think that what's happening in the media is so, right. <laughs> you know, and, you know, so there were all these yeah, yeah. scandalous stories about her in the media. And, you know, and of course, then those are broadly shared on social media, which just, you know, kind of becomes just another. So it seems like, oh, she's really in trouble. The media. Right. And so then everybody who's extremely online is like, oh, no, you know, this is terrible. And like, you know, um, and, you know, my friends are all, you know, my, you know, media friends are all like, yeah texting me being like what's going on you know should we still support her and like what's our and you know i just i'm just like no we're still supporting her (laughs) (laughs) like we're you know we're maintaining party discipline here um and um and when you would go out and knock on doors because i was of of i volunteered on that campaign and um and when you would go out and knock on doors like not a single person would say I read this scandalous thing. Right, 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 right. Like, like you would go and you would say, you know, this, you know, this person is running to represent you, and she's really concerned about afford affordable housing and, you know, um, you know, stuff like this. And then you would go around, you know, Bushwick into the um, various housing projects, and you know, talk about that. And people were like, "That sounds great." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, you know, so they, they actually they actually cared more about housing than about like 
all of these details and scandals and pseudo scandals about yes. her personal life and her background. Right. All that seemed like a little bit less important than having right. affordable and housing. Her Jewish identity and like <laughs> yeah, yeah. long stories that were like planted in the, um, you know, you know, and, you know, <laughs> or, you know, she, she did something strange when she was in college or, you know, and it, like, um, astonishingly, not a single working class person in her district <laughs> Actually, was cared about any of, any of this. It's like, okay, that's, that's nice about housing, but like, I want to I want to hear about like her her Jewish bona fides, right? Like, like right. mother, right. father, what do you know? Like, right, 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 exactly. Or you know, like, was she really was she born in Colombia? Was she born here? Like, no, <laughs> not a, a, the, the, these were not pressing issues um, to people who weren't uh, on the Twitter all day. Um, so um, so that was yeah. So it was it was sort of a fascinating case study, um, and um, um, and the fact is. Um, the most authentic thing about Julia is her socialist politics. So we really got lucky with that. Yeah, which is the part that actually matters, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so so, anyway, so yeah. she was reelected easily, and um, and, yeah. um, and 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 actually, to me, um, we we pay a lot more attention. Again, me, you know, being part of the media, we and Jack yeah. are part of this too. We pay a lot more attention to the newer people. Um, and we should because they're wonderful. But I personally, it actually was even more exciting to me that um, Julia and as well as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were reelected because mm -hmm. to me that shows that socialists can, um, you know, can build power and serve the people when we get into office as well as just, you know, successfully campaign, which is only one thing. You know, right. you know that that we can actually stay there and and be really successful. It seems even better than that we can get elected. Um, so, um, so also Alexandria Ocasio Cortez um, mirrored that um, um, absolutely overwhelming victory and popularity in her own district. But that's a separate story because we're talking. Yeah, about and, and where I'm, yeah, and where I'm from in, in mid Michigan, Rashida Tlaib. Um, uh, yeah. absolutely dominated that, that primary, which, which was a very similar thing because there were people, there were like very online people who were convinced that like people would care that she'd like booed Hillary Clinton you oh, know, I know. last year. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, yeah, now weirdly enough, nobody in like John Conyers old district of Detroit actually gave a shit about that. Like at all. <laughs> exactly. uh, you know, yeah. anybody who noticed probably liked her more because of it, but, uh, right. but yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, um, so we've got, so the other people were, um, were amazing. So um, we had um, um, also, um, so Farah Sufrent Forrest mm. um, is, who is now my assemblywoman representing me in my district. Um, and, um, and she is a, um, a nurse and a tenant activist um, um, and, you know, and just like a really, um, um, really, really wonderful woman. And um, also my state senator now, uh, Jabari Brisport, is a, a middle mm. school teacher um, and, um, and a, a longtime um, DSA member. I mean, he's, he, we, we actually, he was one of our 
first um, campaigns that like a, a couple years ago, we tried to run him for city council um, and, um, and, and he um, ran on the green party, which is like not a, 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 right. not a successful a strategy uh, in a, I mean, this is a neighborhood sure. where yeah. a lot of people will just vote for whoever is the Democrat. And it's just not a, a it's, it, it's not culturally a, a, a logical fit to run on right. the Green Party, um, but you know we learn things, and um, and so and then um, um, Marcella Mittens, um is now actually this is sort of um, this is sort of gratifying to me when I think about how we're really um, how we're kind of broadening our appeal. Um, Marcella is in her um, her late thirties, and she has a twenty-year-old daughter. And I mean, you know, so where people are not all, all like, um, yeah, right. really young. <laughs> like, so that's also yeah, really nice. That is good. Um, yeah, it is. I, I think that that's, I mean, I think it's good for us to be a vibrant youth movement. And I'm not just saying this because I myself am a middle-aged mom, um, but, um, but I just think that, you know, the world is composed of a lot of different working people with different at different points in the age, uh, in the life cycle. And I think it's really good to have, um, have, have people who, who have had a lot of different experiences um, representing our, our movement. Um, and um, also Marcella was, um, was born in Peru. I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a journey um, yeah. to, the, um, to the New York State Assembly. And, um, and then we have, um, I think. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, so this was. This is a very um, um, interesting guy too. We have um, Zoran Kwame Mamdani, um, who um, who won um, the an assembly seat in Queens um, in Astoria, um, and um, and he is a really um, um, really really fascinating person. Um, he's a um, um, by his day, his day job, he counsels people on getting out of foreclosure. So she, he had a really um, intimate and nuanced sense of what the constituents were dealing with um, in terms of, um, of, of, of direct confrontation with capital over their housing every day. Um, and, um, um, and, um, and, you know, he's, um, his, 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 his family spent time in refugee camps. I mean, he right. has the whole, he, he has the, he has the, this, um, um, also, um, also fascinating, um, immigrant story. Um, and, um, yeah, so these people are, are all, um, so different from each other, but they, um, they each represent, um, New York's immigrant communities, um, and, and working class in a really, um, different and interesting way. And they are such comrades. I mean, it, the, 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 the races were really not just races of individuals for which, you know, DSA was um, sort of a, a common organization. The, um, these, these elect, these races were really um, very intertwined with the, with the, with the candidates um, communicating to each other a lot, the campaigns um, coordinating. Um, and, um, and it was really seen as one big, um, it was really seen as one big New York City DSA um, effort, um, and um, and 
you know, it was so depressing when yeah. the pandemic hit and, um, and, you know, we had to go inside and we couldn't knock on doors. Um, and um, um, I, um, I, I, I wrote, I wrote this piece in February about um, following Zoran around and knocking on doors with him. And, um, and it was like within the, the piece went up a little late and the pandemic was just hitting and already it felt like this sad nostalgia piece about how we <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. you know and it was like you know it was like and then we knocked on the door and this you know this uh, guy comes to the door and we're like excited to like hear what he's gonna say and you know it was just like oh this is like none of this can happen anymore it's so sad <laughs> um, and um and so um um you know, so so it was it was so uh, like it was so demoralizing when that happened, and um, and the um, the way that people um, built up an entirely different way of communicating with the community, and just you know, and the and was really able to make phone banking work and to make it feel like a collective thing. Um, I mean. Uh, like you know even and it's it's such a um you know for most on most campaigns phone banking is this thing you just really don't want to do it's so alienating and like you know and and it's just like really like it's really boring and terrible labor certainly had those experiences but yeah uh, but But it just it really the um the, the dsa campaigns really invigorated it and found so many ways to ways to communicate with people and get it um, and and get the, the the message out and you know it's it's not I think that it's what's what's much more the case is that the victory was um, was a result of the very hard work of organizing that so many people did and um, and that so and and the um, ability that this organization now has to reach so many volunteers and get them roped in. Um, and, um, and I tend to not think that, um, that we win so much by having the perfect message as by um, all of that hard work. However, mm-hmm. um, our message was really good. <laughs> I mean, like we just, yeah. we just really talked all the time about the things that matter to people most and that are most central to um, everyone's well-being. I mean, and, um, and housing was an absolute um, unifying theme across all of the campaigns. Um, and, you know, they talked a great deal about um, the other, um, the other very material issues um, affecting people in the district, like healthcare and, um, and education as well. Um, and, um, you know, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Labor, which, which is, you know, w- which, which definitely does bring us to, um, you know, the, the history lesson part of your article, which I want to just touch on for, for a minute, cause this yeah. is so cool uh, that, uh, this crop of socialists going to the state assembly is certainly more, you know, diverse in the backgrounds they come from, um, you know, not all male, et cetera. But 
uh, the this is not the first time there have been several social you know people from a socialist organization in the New York State Assembly. Can you talk about that for a minute? So uh, this is uh, just one of those uh, things that um, you you just um, you just love learning. So um, so um, our our little victory of electing um, five socialists from one organization. Um, to the New York State um, government in 2020 um, was a um, um, a lovely way to celebrate the centennial of a little-known piece um, of of earlier um, socialist history. So, in um, 1919, um, five socialists from um, the Socialist Party, Eugene V. Debs's um, party. Um, which I think later became Socialist Party of America, but um, yeah, I think I think at this point it's just Socialist Party, um, and um, and um, and they were um, and and they were like some of them were already um, in the assembly, um, and um, and some of them were elected for the first time, um, much like our candidates. You're you're absolutely right; they were not as diverse as the slate that we just elected. Um, they were um, they, they were all white. None of them were African American, um, and um, and and they were also all men. Um, but um, but similarly, um, some of them did come from immigrant communities at that time, and some and um, and and did and were working class people, and um, they very had a very similar. Um, agenda to um, our current socialists in um, in that I just um, I, I just love this way that um, that two of them wrote about it. They described their socialist principles this way: to make the lives of the people happier. Their daily question was this: Is this for the benefit of the workers? If it is, we're for it. If it is not, we're against it. <laughs> you know, and I just thought that's something yeah. that, that that's unchanged i mean socialists are just really doing the same things that we've always been doing um you know and um and so um they um so it's it is a um it is quite a story they were so they were elected um in 1919 and um by the way, at that point, assembly terms were only one year, which for those of, um, of us um, who have volunteered even a little bit on these recent campaigns. It's kind of daunting like, thinking about how to do that again every year. Four people had to do it again every year. Um, and I'm sure that it took just as much work then as it does now. Um, and so um, so that's something to be thankful for. Um, but yeah, so they were the, the assembly campaigns were only a year um and um and they were so they were elected and um and then um the the country was in the grip of the red scare um which um was um um, a um, a total panic um, caused um, by a total panic in the American ruling class um, prompted by the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution um, right. and um, and the um, and the U.S. ruling class was um, was absolutely convinced um, that um, uh, that something like that was just around the corner here and. That, I mean, not completely without basis because right. there were um, there was a lot of radical organizing going on mm -hmm. um, here, and there was a lot of um, um, and there you know and the, and in fact, 
um, the that Red Scare had a very anti-immigrant component, mm -hmm. which was not simplistically just racist. I mean, the ruling class correctly um, noticed that a lot of people coming from other countries had more radical um, right. and more leftist views and were fairly good organizers at good at convincing um, the native born working class that um, that, that socialism um, had some merits. Um, and so, so, th so there was a, um, um, so, um, so just following the Palmer mm -hmm. raids in which um, Woodrow Wilson's government um, targeted and and tried to deport um, successfully in some cases um, a number of leftist immigrants, um, the um, Republicans and Democrats in the New York State Assembly um, voted to expel our five socialists um, in 1919. Um, and um, and they had them um, forcibly removed by armed police when they uh, when they refused to leave the capital. Um, in a, a, a account um, I read about this at the time, um, reportedly. Um, a, a few Democrats were a little embarrassed about having done this. And as the socialists were dragged out, they muttered, sorry, boys, we couldn't help it. Um, that, which I just like think is a, so that's, like, that's just a so perfect, Democrats are going to be yeah, Democrats. That's, 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 right? that's, the, that, that's peak Democrat, you know, that, like, we're not, we're, we're not like, going to stop you. you out from, like, oh, we're so sorry. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's so after they were they were kicked out, right? So so I know, you know, you said in the article, you know, there 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 was a there's a trial. I think you said uh, some account said only the lobbyists were sober. Yes, yes, yes <laughs> which yes, is amazing. The trial just totally did, after the after the verdict um, and the um, and the it was it was upheld that the socialists should be kicked out, and then you know just like everyone is just. Everyone is drinking, and um, a, uh, um, a one of one of their colleagues um, says they should be strung up to the nearest lamppost uh, with their feet dangling in the air. Um, but um, but they um, there was a special election held to mm -hmm. fill the seats since those those districts were now unrepresented, and all five of the socialists were reelected. So, so which is which is great too, because that means we're at the uh, the exact 100 years uh, exactly. from from that happening this fall. So our victory is a lovely way to celebrate the centennial um, of 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 that. Um, it was a short-lived victory um, right. because um, um, be, because the they were. Um, expelled again, three of them were expelled <laughs> right, 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 again, right, right. and the other two resigned in solidarity. Um, and, um, but a number of them ran later and were reelected. Yeah. Know, so like they, they just, uh, you know, they nevertheless persisted. And now impressive instance, maybe of persisted. Yeah. Uh, the one, that one, but uh, <laughs> <Reclaim> it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Uh, so, so yeah. Oh, and by the way, I, I should ask somebody in the Q and a, uh, was was uh, wanted to hear your reaction to the uh, the Cory Bush uh, victory in Missouri, going along with what we've been so, talking about. Oh, so exciting! I mean, just such a uh, such a wonderful, wonderful um, victory. Yeah, um, and um, I uh, 
Um, I heard that um, from, I, I have heard from people active in, um, in, in police um, issues and, um, and, you know, those movements and that, um, um, and socialists, that she is a real comrade. I mean, this is like, yes. like, this is one of those things, one of those developments that is as good as it looks, which is really nice in politics. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, absolutely, especially yeah. circling back. In yeah, that, sometimes uh, you think, oh, maybe if I knew more about this, I'd be really disappointed, but yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. turns out actually... Um, actually, this this particular case... This, this, this really is better. good news, yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to close out with, the at the end of uh, your article, you quote uh, Morris Hilquit, who was a, one of the main leaders of the Socialist Party in 1920, uh, as well as serving as a defense lawyer for the Socialist Assemblymen yeah. when they were being purged. Yeah. Uh, and and this, is, this is just such a, such a perfect uh, way, to, way to cap it off. I love this so much. Uh, Henceforth, it will be a finished fight between social democracy and capitalist absolutism. The fight is only beginning. The socialists are ready for it. It's yeah. very timely. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really does. Uh, so, um, so yeah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ben. What a delight. And congratulations on the new show. Thank you so much. Uh, so, oh, um, somebody in the chat or the Q&A said uh, they couldn't find Jacobin anywhere. I'm not sure if they're talking about the magazine or the YouTube. Uh, I think the YouTube channel, I think if you just search Jacobin into YouTube, you should find that. Uh, the magazine is jacobinmag.com. Uh, uh, so J-A-C-O-B-I-N-M-A-G.com. Um, somebody also asked if this was going to be clipped in segments on YouTube alongside the whole, whole podcast. Uh, and it is uh, actually very like, very lucky. Uh, very happy about this, uh, that we've got Forrest on board, who's the uh, video editor from the Michael Brooks show, uh, who is, um, is also going to be the video editor for this show. He's going to be doing the same kinds of things, you know, uh, putting out clips and segments. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I'm really excited about that, you know, the kind of professionalism, you know, that, that he's bringing to this. Um, you know, along with, yeah, David Feldman, Cole James Cash, oh, J. Andrew World, who made that awesome logo uh, for the podcast. Again, much like, uh, <laughs> you know, much like capitalist business enterprises, you know, there are a lot of people you're not seeing on, on screen uh, who, who contribute uh, to, uh, to, you know, making the product. And it's worth emphasizing. Uh, I also got a question in the chat. Uh, people who are going to be listening to this later as a podcast are not going to see this. But uh, behind me, uh, one of the books uh, marring my bookshelf is uh, Glenn Beck's Arguing with Socialists, uh, which I actually got a little while back because uh, I said, you know, the joke was that if I got up to 100 people on my Patreon, I should do something along the lines of some gimmicky thing like say I'm going to eat a bowl of spiders or something. So Glenn Beck's book about socialism is certainly a bowl of literary spiders. Um, and uh and since you know did make it up to 100 uh did i did read it it's uh it's about as bad as you'd think it would be uh but uh i co-wrote a review of it with nathan robinson for current affairs uh a few episodes down the line nathan's going to be joining us to talk about that review it's called educating glenn beck uh and 
Uh, I should also say uh, that episode two uh, next Saturday, uh, that's the 15th, uh, is, uh, is going to have uh, David Gruska, uh, the, uh, who does uh, the economic segments on the Michael Brooks show. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's going to come on and, and this is not a joke. I really want to talk to him about whiskey and country music as well as, of course, about socialist politics. Uh, and then because I don't want this all to be me just talking to people I agree with, uh, Dave Smith, who's a libertarian podcaster and comedian who I've debated in the past, uh, is, uh, is going to come on uh, and, you know, talk to him a little bit about comedy, but also about our political disagreements. Um, and uh, then uh, Lee Phillips, uh, who's the co-author of a really wonderful book I strongly recommend about economic planning. I think probably the smartest thing that I've read, certainly, about the prospects for socialist economic planning. Uh, the, uh, the People's Republic of Walmart. Um, uh, Lee Phillips is actually coming right after the, uh, the libertarian discussion uh, with, uh, uh, with Dave. Uh, and then uh, the last guest, certainly not least, to put it mildly, uh, for episode two is going to be the uh, great Anna Kasparian. And so I'm really looking forward uh, to, uh, to that episode. If you're watching this later on, on YouTube or you're listening to it as a podcast, you should know that these are recorded uh, live to tape. So thank you all. And I will see you next Saturday. Thank you for joining us on the maiden voyage of Give Them an Argument. I want to thank our guest today, TMBS producer Matt Leck, historian Harvey J.K., Jacobin founding editor Bhaskar Sunkara, and Jacobin columnist Liza Featherstone. If you want to sit in on a future recording of Give Them an Argument, we record live on Zoom from 4 to 6 p.m. EST on Saturday afternoons. You can find the uh, Zoom links to be part of that uh, Zoom studio audience on twitter.com slash Ben Burgess. Once the episodes are recorded, you can find them immediately on my Patreon uh, if you join as a patron. So that's patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. I am the author of a book that has the same name as this podcast. I'm also a columnist at Jacobin and Arc Digital Media and a staff writer at The Third Rail as well as a philosophy instructor at Georgia State University Perimeter College. You can find links to all of those things on my website. That's benburgess.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.